My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. that the realm we're living in is slowing to a stop and what was possible a thousand years ago is multitudes of sophistication beyond what we are capable of today? Could it be that ancient beings haunt the fringes of our realm sowing seeds of chaos to evade their eternal damnation? And what if all of this was explained in the Bible? On today's podcast, we return to the subject of the Nephilim and the role of the elites in suppressing these historical characters. We discuss the lost secrets of the Bible and why faith in God is being supplanted by scientific materialism more and more in schools and universities. All these questions pondered with today's guest, Ed Mabry, the man behind faithbyreason.net, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And enjoy this conversation with Ed Mabry. The people who are running, of the entities that are running this earth, okay, what does that have to do with our creativity and trying to suppress it? Well, they don't have creativity. They don't. We do as human beings. That makes us a threat. Our uniqueness is a threat to the people in charge, like I said before. So what they want to do is take that uniqueness and suppress it as much as possible. They don't want us to be great. They don't want us to be geniuses. They want us to just conform to them so that they can rule over us. You cannot rule over a great person. Why? Because like you just said, Mark, you're a nonconformist. You can't be ruled. Why? Because you're going to say, well, what if I don't want to do this? What if I don't want to obey your laws? What if I think your laws are silly? Well, that makes you dangerous. Geniuses are dangerous. Have you noticed it? Geniuses are almost never appreciated until they're dead, because when you're alive, they're a threat. When they're dead, they're no longer a threat. Now you can just take advantage of what they contributed. Our genius, our uniqueness makes us a threat to the rulers of this world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. You know me and with me today... 
is an excellent guest, someone who I was recently introduced to through Sam Tripoli's podcast, Zero. He then made his way to the gauntlet tinfoil hat where he crushed it, and I was excited at the prospect of having him here on this show to go maybe a little deeper, get into some things that uh, you guys didn't talk about before. But Ed, for folks who might not have caught that episode with you on Tinfoil Hat or maybe haven't seen your YouTube channel or website before, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know what brings you to this point in, in life where you feel called to share this message. Sure. Thanks, Mark, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And yeah, you did a great job getting me booked on Tinfoil Hat and Zero. At the, Sam and I had a great conversation on Zero that carried over to Tinfoil Hat. We had some technical difficulties right when I was getting to the meat of it. And Sam, you know, it's going to be nice enough to have me back, which is awesome. But yeah, so thanks for having me on. So a little bit about me. Well, first, let's start with, you know, my how you can uh, see what I do and what I'm all about. And that will be my website, which is uh, faithbyreason.net, not .com. So just all one word, faithbyreason.net. And the whole uh, principle behind Faith by Reason, as the name applies, I don't see any type of conflict between uh, rational faith and reason. I'm not an advocate of blind faith. Blind faith simply means you believe something just because you want it to be true, and that's illogical. I believe in faith that's based on knowledge and experience, and that happens to be the type of faith that the God of the, of the Judeo-Christian philosophy, that's what he expects from us. So as you can probably guess from that, I am a Christian. I've been you know, a Christian my entire life. I literally raised in a church in a, a black church in South Central LA. That's, you know, that's where I grew up and I live in Northern California right now. But basically I am a researcher, I'm a truth seeker, and I'm a Christian in that order. Because okay? I think that the first two will lead you to the third. And I've always had an inquisitive mind, always been uh, very curious. Of, um, if you ask my parents what my first words were, they would have said my first words were why, because I was always asking them why. And I did the same thing when I was in church. You know, I, I, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the, the doctrines of Christianity, but I would always ask why, because, you know, there's a lot of things that are a little strange in the Bible, I think, to, 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 uh, to put it mildly. And so I would ask, you know, why was there a flood? Why did God, you know, flood the whole world and kill everybody? You know, how are we saved by the blood of Jesus? Why does Jesus bleeding, like, uh, make us saved? How was he born of a virgin? You know, were there really giants on the earth when it says in Genesis chapter six that, you know, there were the Nephilim, these giants, were they real? And what is hell? What is heaven? And eventually, I think the pastors at the church just kind of got tired of me asking them questions all the time as a kid. And they just they told me, you know, and it, it's not right to, to question God. You can't question God. So I was like, oh, OK, well, that's the case. I don't want to make God mad. So I'll stop questioning him. And I stopped asking questions and I stopped challenging my own faith. I just, I believed what I was told because, you know, I wanted to be a good Christian. And that was fine up until I got to college. And when I got to university, I went to a, a very secular progressive university. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting them to embrace my Christian faith, but I was not prepared for the level of hostility I would I was getting from the professors, from my fellow students and my professors, they took like delight in just deconstructing everything I believed. They would tell me, you know, that, you know, the Bible's unreliable. It's not historic. It was just made up 
by a bunch of ancient Jews who basically stole the the precepts of the Bible from other uh, more ancient uh, religious traditions like the Sumerians and the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians, and that the God of the Bible, Jehovah or Yahweh, he was nothing more than just a Canaanite vengeance God that the Israelites adopted. And, you know, you, there was no such person as Jesus, or if he existed, you know, he was just a guy. And I had nothing to combat that with because, again, I never challenged myself. And even my fellow students, they would ask me questions, you know, some of the classic questions, like, you know, if there, if God is good, then why is there evil in the world? Why do people who are, you know, in child trafficking and arms dealing and rapists and murderers, why do they seem to get away with it? Why doesn't God punish them? And things like that. And I just had no answer. And it wrecked me. It wrecked my religious beliefs. I, I never stopped believing in God because the alternative was just ridiculous to me. It, you know, no matter how far I, I may have strayed from my faith, I never believed in the paradigm of naturalistic evolution because it just made no sense. It was unscientific. I mean, I have a whole series about that on faithfivereason.net. You can go to the creation versus evolution area. But, you know, the idea that, you know, order comes from chaos, that you could have randomness that leads to order, that's, that violates the second law of thermodynamics. It, actually, evolution violates the, all three laws of thermodynamics. The, the first law is that matter cannot be created or destroyed. It violates that with the idea of once upon a time there was nothing and then nothing exploded and created everything. That's a violation of the first law. Right. And then the idea that over time things go from simple to complex. You know, we go from amino acids to simple cell to fish to amphibian to lizard to mammal to monkey to man. That's going up in complexity by incredible magnitudes. And again, that violates the second law of thermodynamics, which is the entropy laws, which state that the opposite, that over time things lose energy. They go from complex to simple. So anyway, I'm not going to get into that here. We could do a whole other show on that kind of stuff. But I stopped. I, I believed in God, but I just stopped believing in what people said about God because, you know, I, I couldn't answer these questions. So I basically, when I started questioning what I was told about God, I started questioning other things. What about, you know, what I've been, what I've been told about history and the government? And that kind of got me into the conspiracy world. And like in my first job out of college, uh, a guy who I worked with, he introduced me to to Bill Cooper and Behold a Pale Horse. And you know, I was just, I was all into it. And so I, you know, went down the conspiracy path. Anyway, long story short, as short as I'm going to make it, because this has been a long story so far, is I eventually came back to my faith. I got to a point where I was at a crossroads because I, I started dabbling in other religions and other faith systems, trying to figure out what is true. And I felt like God's prodding his, his voice, not an audible voice, but I, I just heard him say to me, you have, you got to make a choice. You're on a creator crossroads. Either you're going to go with me or you're going to go down the road of, of other religions and you need, you need to make a choice. You can't scrabble the fence. And I said, okay, God, I'm going to go with you, but I need you to make sense to me. You know, this, the Bible Christianity doesn't make sense. And if you're real, then you should make sense. And to his credit, he got put me on a path, introduced me to people and introduced me to education and research and concepts that have convinced me more than ever, not only that is, is God real and that he makes sense and that he can be known, but that he actually wants to be known, which you know, makes sense if he is who he says he is. If he is a creator and an intelligent being, then you would want intelligent beings you created that you sired to, to know you. And 
So I created Faith by Reason for Christians to help them understand why our faith makes sense. And I use logic, reason, and systematic analysis. I'm a systems, I'm a systems thinker. I think in big systems and which are effects, but I want to get down to the causes. I want to get down to the origins because when you understand the origins of anything, then you can understand what how they extrapolate out. So if you understand the causes, you can understand the effects. And yeah, that's really what it's all about. Brilliant. And don't feel long-winded. I have the patience to sit here and listen. I think the audience enjoys that. I don't interrupt the flow. So yeah, take it away when you feel like you have the energy. Don't feel the need to let me butt in. But I do want to say, I have a similar yet maybe parallel opposite experience in the sense that I was sort of, you know, through my family made to go to church as a kid. And I'm sure many children have this experience, maybe particularly where I'm from on the East Coast. It seems like the norm is that people kind of treat church like a, you know, obligation once a week and maybe on holidays or some people really just only on holidays. Right. So I kind of grew up in that culture where people didn't seem to take it seriously enough to uh, learn much about their faith or their religion, but they took it seriously enough to show up. Right. So that, that always felt disingenuous to me. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that kind of led me down this path of scientific atheism, which for my teenage years felt rebellious. It felt individualistic. It felt like yeah, I was kind of owning my mind and, and not giving into what others were sort of trying to coerce me into thinking. So it was a sense of freedom that I appreciated. But eventually, I started to feel this sort of emptiness. And I noticed that because of my worldview, my world was starting to, I guess, and it's kind of, this is in hindsight, I say this, because I don't really think I realized it totally then. But I started to feel like an emptiness. And, you know, for whatever reason, cannabis came into my life and (laughs) unlocked this feeling that really just reminded me over and over again, like, hey, you're more than this physical body. You've known that your whole life. You know, there's more than just humans. Like, you know, there's got like all of these ideas of really, I would call them more creation ideas rather than Catholic ideas. Cause I, I was raised in the Catholic church. Okay. It's, yeah. It started to, that. started to come through as this sort of natural sort of perennial philosophy. And I started to see it in all these things, you know, from uh, shamanism to, you know, Taoism. When I was a martial artist, I was really into Taoism and Bruce Lee's teachings, but I used to see it in all these things. And I started to really kind of have this, Uh, prowess among my friends like oh yeah Mark's into that kind of stuff he's into spirituality and people would come to me and ask me about stuff like that and I realized you know like wow like what a weird trajectory where I kind of rejected all that and then kind of came back into it you know it, it does seem similar if not opposite from your experience in the sense that like school kind of 
gave you this impression that maybe to fit in, you should, you know, downplay some of those aspects of yourself. And I yeah. experienced that myself, especially when I expressed interest in some of this stuff, people would be like, what, don't you like video games or sports? Like, what are you learning about history for at 16 years old? You know, like, so I, I had the similar experiences, but I, I want to maybe focus not uh, so much on my own story. I just kind of want to relate to you there, but maybe shift gears for a second here into the university system and school and why yeah. this sort of scientific materialism is so pervasive there. Because from my research, I've been really fascinated with Yale University and trying to understand them as a school and it seems to me like universities were religious creation in a sort of sense that they were first established by Catholic monks, which, right. you know, there yeah. sh I'm sure there were ancient examples of schools and things like this. But the university, as we know it today, you know, is about a thousand or so years old and comes from Europe, from Christian people. So I'm wondering, like, have you looked much into that and, you know, given your path, like, tried to make sense of that, like, I, I don't want to say humiliation, because I don't know that you felt humiliated, but... Oh, it, I'll tell you a story about that. Cause, no, well, and because I feel like that's kind of an aspect of the school system now is to sort of weed out anyone who's contrarian, right? So anyone who expresses something that doesn't go along with the herd, they make a fool of you. I mean, I, I had a, moments like that in school where I tried to contradict the lesson plan or I tried to contradict the teacher's opinion. And, you know, I was just sort of made a fool of. And it's very easy for someone who has 30 to, you know, 40 more years of experience over you to make a fool of you, even if you're wrong, even if they're wrong and you're right. You know, like it, yeah. that's the sort of cynical thing about teachers is like they their ego is there and and it comes out. But anyways, I'm I'm babbling on. What do you yeah, think well, of all this? Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot you mentioned there. And I want to I want to make sure I hit on a lot of the, some of the topics you were talking about, because you, you, you brought up some really interesting points when you get back to what schools were and what they're supposed to be. As you said, most of our institutions in America, the big institutions, they started off as religious. I mean, Harvard was a seminary. You know, it's the most famous university in the country. Right. It, it did start off as a secular university. It was a seminary that eventually evolved that way. And that was just the way things were. You start with, you, you talked about how our university systems, you know, roughly a thousand years old in the beginning of the Catholic world in medieval times. And, you know, you they would teach you. If you were a, you had to be, you know, fairly wealthy to attend school. Most, you know, we, it was an agrarian society back then. Most people worked in the fields and whatnot. And if you had some money, you went to university and the university you would go to would be, you know, it, was, it would be a religious university. You would be taught Latin so you could read the Bible because that was, we can talk about Catholicism in a, in a minute because, oh my God, I would just say this really quickly. I mean, if you were raised Catholic, I've noticed you're going to go in one of three directions. You, because... As a thinking, if you're a thinking person raised Catholic, you're gonna you're gonna realize that what you're being told is frankly bullshit. So yeah, and, and I, yeah, I, I <laughs> profanity's not a sin. I talked about this on Sam's show. Yeah, profanity is a social construct. So let's just be real about that. God doesn't care about what we as a society decide is a curse word. That's you know, you take a, a, an offensive word like you know the word fag in you know, in America, it's a very offensive horrible term for a homosexual male that, you know, we don't use a polite society. You go over to England, it's the, the same word means cigarette. 
<laughs> so it, right. it's the it, same word, same pronunciation, but in one society, it's an offensive term. In another society, it just means a, a cigarette. So <laughs> it's a social construct. I just want to put that out there in case I curse again. I don't want people to think, oh, you're not a Christian because you're cur- because you because you curse. No, that's that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> well, so when you're Catholic, you realize it's, it's yes. And you, you can either walk away from it. Like my wife, for example, my wife and my best friend were both raised Catholic. And they realize that what they're being, what they've been told, does not make sense. It, it's contradictory. It's hypocritical. And they still, but they still believed in God. And they eventually came. They there, and to this day, they're still Christian, but they're no longer Catholic. That's one direction people go. Another direction people go is they just become hardcore atheists because they completely associate the Catholic doctrine with the true God of the Bible, and they slide, they just throw the baby out with the bathwater. That you know, if what's what these priests and nuns and catechisms and Hosts say is is wrong and makes no sense, and they represent God. Then God must be uh, God must not exist either. And they go hardcore back. But whenever I encounter a really hardcore atheist, my first question to them is, "Were you raised Catholic?" And they'll look at me in shock, like, "Yeah, how did you know?" I'm like, "Lucky guess," because <laughs> I, there's a saying that Catholics make the best atheists. I mean, you, you you will find like at the core of the hardcore atheist is Catholic or in the other third direction they go and I have a good friend of mine who went in this direction. They double down on, on their faith. They question what they've been taught, but instead of going away from it, they say, you know what? I don't have enough faith. So I'm just going to close my eyes and stick my fingers in my ear and just believe it even harder. Right, right, right. And that- so that's kind of how it goes. So anyway, I want to get back to the education aspect of it. Mm. Education to these days is indoctrination. It's not about teaching you how to think. It's teaching you what to think. And it was not supposed to be that way, but our, our systems have, our uh, education system has evolved over the, the the decades to because of the money that they've gotten from some of these elites like the Rockefellers and whatnot who have given so much money to the universities that they get to decide what the curriculum is going to be. And the curriculum now is basically to teach you what to think, is to indoctrinate you, is to make you the same. And I'm going to take it a level up from that because this is an aspect of what human government is is, is intended to do. The purpose of human government is to make everybody the same, is to um, stomp out your uniqueness. And when we were first talking, uh, I think, Mark, right before we got on the air, you were telling me that what you want to do on this show is, is talk about the uniqueness of the individual and their journey. And I'm all about that because we are all unique individuals, meaning that we are all extremely valuable. Why? What, where, do you get, where do you get value? Value comes from rarity. Why is a diamond valuable? Because there are not that many of them. You know, why is Bitcoin valuable? Because, you know, unlike our excuse me, fiat currency, you can just print money, you know, at it an item. You know, Bitcoin is that there's only going to be a certain amount of Bitcoin. That's why it's so valuable because it's rare. Well, the rarest thing in the world would be something that only, wherein only one of it exists. Well, that's you. There's only one Mark. No one else is like you. There's only one Ed. There's no one else like me. That makes us the most valuable thing in the world. Here's the problem with that. And I'm going to take it back to the biblical um, um, aspect of it. We were created to be, if you go actually the, the Genesis narrative, Adam and Eve, they were created to be the king and queen of the earth. That's what God said, you know, he made Adam, he made Eve, he said, you know, take the earth, subdue it, everything's going to obey you. You make the earth into Eden. Eden was the garden. 
He said, make the rest of God said, make the rest of the earth like Egypt. Every world will obey you. You are the king and queen. And, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. He told him to go have sex, which you know, it's pretty cool to me for God to say that. He said, go have children, and you and your children are going to rule this earth, which means that we have at our core, we have a royalty. We have royal aspirations. We want to be great. Well, here's the thing about greatness. And again, it's even with, you know, we can go into original sin and what that all means, but even with that, even with the fall of man, we still have in the core of our souls this desire to be kings and queens, this desire to be greatness. What is great? Greatness, what is greatness? Greatness is your ability to do what no one else can do. Your greatness is your uniqueness. And if the world worked out perfectly, we would all just enjoy each other's uniqueness. Because I would go to Mark and say, you know what, Mark, you have something I don't have. I want to get value from you. And you can do the same to get value from me. And we can all live in harmony, just living with each other and getting value from each other, just enjoying the uniqueness that everyone else has. We have, if there's 7 billion people on the earth, you can have 7 billion chances to get unique value from all these people. And that will be a wonderful, harmonious way to live. And that is technically what heaven is going to be. And we'll get to that. But here's the thing. Governments are about a few people running things, either a one king and everyone else is a servant or, or you know, or a dictator or like maybe a small parliament or something like that. But it's, a, it's about the few controlling the many. The problem with that is that in order for a human government to work, there can only be a few people who are allowed to be great because everyone else's greatness is a threat to the ruling people. So the only way to quash people and to keep them under control is to make sure that their greatness it never comes to fore, never threatens you. How do you quell their greatness? Do you, you quell their uniqueness? How do you quell people's uniqueness? By telling them that they are all the same. And that is what we, in our society, incorrectly call equality. We corrupted that word equality. What equality is supposed to mean is that you and I are equally valuable, that I'm as valuable as Mark, that I, that, you know, where is that you're as valuable, Mark, as, you know, the lady down the street. But what they're telling us instead is that we're all equal. We're all the same. There's no difference between men and women. There's no difference between black and white. There's no difference between any of us. We're all the same. And they do that through laws. Laws homogenize us and tell us we all have to behave the same. Nothing against laws. I prefer law over anarchy. But if you notice, the bigger government gets, the more laws there are, and the more laws there are, the more it suppresses that uniqueness. And right now, so back to the university aspect, it's telling us all to think the same, and that if you think outside of this box, then you are persecuted. If you think any, if you don't think what society wants you to think about, let's take something you know, pretty inflammatory right now. And that's the whole, you know, sexuality, gay versus straight versus trans. We are told right now that if you don't accept a trans person, not just accept them, if you don't celebrate a trans person, you're a bigot. Well, I don't want to be a bigot, so I, I guess I better just praise every trans person. I mean, I have nothing against trans people. I don't care. You live your life the way you want to live. It's a free country. What I don't like is being told what my morality has to be. We're all told we have to live with the same morality. We have to have all the same thoughts. We have to, and if you do, if you digress from that at all, and you have any type of unique thoughts, if you say, hey, wait a minute, 
you know, I think that there is a definition for a man and a woman. I, I don't think that men and women are the same. I, I, I have a, you know, if you think that, then suddenly you are shouted down by society. And that's what happens in the university system now. If you think outside the box, you know, it used to be that thinking outside the box, that was, that's how you recognize a genius. You know, that's how you recognize greatness in a person. But now you are rewarded for conformity. There's no more reward for innovation. And that's just tragic. Absolutely right. Yeah, no, great. Great point and well said. I, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but (laughs) whether I wanted to or not, I always found myself in that position of sort of contrarian And uh, yeah, I mean, again, not trying to individuate myself, although I loved what you said about us all being unique individuals and whatnot. It's it was very few and far between. I mean, I have a few friends that I went to high school with that I recognize the same sort of impulse in them, but it, it brushed me up with some situations that you know, compromised my educational career in some ways, right? Where I started to feel this sense of sort of really just like the education system was not what my peers thought it was, or maybe more so what my parents and their peers thought it was, you know, because it it just, it seemed very hollow and corporate and I, again, didn't fully understand all that as a kid, but I I had this instinct like, yeah, well, you know, if everybody else is thinking one way, maybe that's not the right direction to go in. And uh, yeah, it could be a lonely path sometimes, but that's why I'm grateful for this podcast, because it seems like for the most majority of the people who tune into this show, they can relate to that and have had similar paths in life, to your point about us all being unique, you know, I think that through some sort of force, maybe it's society, maybe it's this indoctrination process. It's like the genius, the genius impulse, we'll call it because it's, you know, it's something that can be expressed in anyone. I think that has been diminished on a sort of wide scale through sociological means, you know, whether it's dogmatic religion or dogmatic materialism or even, you know, going into some (laughs) sort of conspiracy angles to this. Maybe it's the electronic signals and the EMF crap that is now really just everywhere surrounding us at most moments of our day, save for the people who are not, you know, so close to the grid. You know, we're all sort of being altered by this. And yeah, I wonder if that's a byproduct of that whole modernization of society is where now less and less of us are expressing that genius impulse. And what really is that genius impulse? I would argue that it's a connection with creator because the creator has all and knows all and is all. And when you can open yourself up to that energy 
there are gifts that are given, you know, it's no coincidence that all these words start with G, you know, I'm no Freemason, but you know, the G seems to be important, you know, God, genius, gifts. I mean, you can go on and on even giants though, which I, I know we're, we might talk about them in this yeah, conversation. Sure. So I guess, I guess I should retract that. But anyways, what do you, what are your thoughts on that and how maybe this genius impulse is being sort of weeded out of society? I think it absolutely is. Remember when we were, I don't know how old you are, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure I'm older than you, I'm around Sam's age. But I remember when I was a kid growing up, we were told that, you know, by the time I was my age, by the time I was 50, there would be flying cars and, you know, we'd be <laughs> having, we'd be on Mars with all this. And I'm like, what happened? Why aren't, why, don't, why haven't we colonized Mars? Why don't we have flying cars? I think because I think our genius has been suppressed and I think it's been intentional. And here's why. So again, I have the Christian world worldview. I, you know, that Christian philosophy. So I believe in the spiritual realm. And by that, I mean the specifically the spiritual realm as it, it is portrayed biblically. But it doesn't mean that I dismiss out of hand, you know, things like, you know, the archons and cryptids and aliens. I believe that those things exist, but I don't think they are what they represent themselves as. I think that they, I think they're two realms. There's our spirit, our physical, material realm, and there is the spiritual realm, or I think it's also known as the ether. I know that's, which is a source of unlimited energy and is consciousness. I think that, you know, God is consciousness. He, you know, when he creates, he's not, he's spirits. And I think the spiritual realm is a realm of consciousness and we have our material realm. So all, the reason I brought that up is because when God starts creating, he speaks things into existence and he, there's, so this unlimited energy that exists in the spiritual realm can be manifested in our physical realm, which is less. Uh, we know we have this idea that our world is the real world, that, you know, that the ground underneath us, the mountains and the trees, that's what's real. And the spiritual realm is like is like this ethereal, fluffy, you know, you, you pass right through it like if you, you know, were falling on a, into a cloud. But I think it's the opposite. I think the spiritual realm is this solid, hard reality and our material realm is actually the ethereal, fluffy, you know, not corporeal, excuse me, realm. So when like a, if you think about something like a ghost doesn't pass through the wall, the wall passes through the ghost, you know, so it's, that's, that's my idea there. So as far as our creativity, as you said, comes from our creator, you know, whether you want to believe it is the God of the Bible or whatever, if you just want to believe it's a creative force. You know, I'm, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not here to save your soul. I, I believe that my worldview is the correct one, but I'm I'm a, a, a willing to allow people to, to go on their own path because I believe if you're seeking truth, you will find truth. And I believe that I'm on that path. And I think you're on that path as well. And that's great. So that creative spark come from, comes from God. And according to Christian philosophy, when God created the first man, he, he didn't speak man into existence. Like, you know, in the Genesis narrative, he says, you know, let there be light, let there be mountains and trees, let there be animals, let there be so forth and so on. He doesn't say, let there be man. But he forms man, our bodies, out of the dust of the earth. And that's, you know, if you look at us chemically, that's really what we are. We're, our bodies are made of, you know, carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and, and hydrogen. It's dirt, basically. But, it, but it's that he breathed into him the breath of life. He, he breathed a ruach, which is the spirit. Basically, he put a spirit, his spirit, into man. And I think that's what gives us our ability to be creative. That is God-given. So we are able to create because of what we were given by God. 
But we are not the only intelligent beings that God created. God also created the entities that we call angels, or more accurately, Elohim. Elohim is translated in the Bible, God, G-O-D. And Elohim is not a name. So, like, his name isn't God. His, 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 he's not, his name is like, isn't God Johnson. He's, his name is just, that he gives in the Bible is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, is transliterated Jehovah in German, which is kind of the term I tend to use because it's easier to pronounce. So Jehovah is an Elohim. Why? Because Elohim is not a name. El- Elohim is a designation of residency. If you dwell in the spiritual realm, if that's your home, then you are an Elohim. If you well, if you if your home is the earth, the material realm, then you are called man. That's how the Bible designates us. So when I, when I say Elohim, I mean spiritual beings. And God, Jehovah, is an Elohim, but he's not. But he is the capital E Elohim, the capital G God, as the Creator. The other entities you call angels are also Elohim. So Jehovah created other intelligent beings, but they were. But man is unique in that. Is the spirit of God, the spirit of the creator is in man. It is not in the entities we call angels. And so we have an aspect of a, a contingent of these angels who, for their own reasons, they fell. And maybe they fell out of jealousy. That's kind of the common um, theory that some of them were, were jealous of man and they they consider man less than them because, you know, we are these, we are kind of locked into this material world, whereas they can you know, transverse the spiritual world. And they didn't think that we should have something they didn't have. That gets, that gets into the whole fall of the angels and uh, with um, fall of Satan or Lucifer, the, the light bearer, who was the chief angel. Anyway, when they fell from God, from God they lost their connection to Jehovah and they were judged and when you are judged by Jehovah, you no longer have a free will. You no longer have creativity. Man retains his creativity. But this world is ruled. We talk about the elites in the conspiracy world, you know, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the 13 families and the Vatican, which I actually believe is, is close to the top of the hierarchy. But above all of, of human of the human elites are the spiritual elites. They all, these elites all worship spiritual beings and they worship them and they partner with them in order to fulfill their goals. And their goals are, it's not just money and power. I mean, that's on the material realm. A lot of conspiracy folks say, well, you know, these people are trying to just gain power. Well, really? They already have that. They have all the money they could ever want. They can print money out of nothing. So there's no, they, they have no lack of money and they're in control tacitly of just about every government on earth. If there is a government they're not in control of, let me know. I might move there, but they have all the money and all the power. So why are they still doing what they do? I think it gets to the spiritual realm. They want to be, they want to be like the gods. That's like, that's back to original sin. When Adam and Eve were tempted by the Nakash, which is mistranslated serpent and Nakash actually Nakash, Nakash can mean serpent if it's used as a noun, but in Genesis 3, Nakash is used as a proper title. And as a proper title, it means the shining one. So Adam and Eve weren't talking to a snake. They were talking to a shining, luminescent being. They were talking to an Elohim. Anyway, what's the temptation? If you eat this forbidden fruit, you will be like the Elohim. You will be like the gods. That's why I said I'm a systems thinker. I get back down to the core. And the core of all so-called sin transgression is this man wanting to be more than what he was allotted by his creator. 
They wanted to be like the gods. And that is still what these elites want. They want to be like the gods. So the, the so-called gods, the Elohim, the fallen angels, they're the ones at the top of the pyramid of the people who are running, of the entities that are running this earth. Okay, what does it have to do with our creativity and trying to suppress it? Well, they don't have creativity. They don't. We do as human beings. That makes us a threat. Our uniqueness is a threat to the people in charge, like I said before. So what they want to do is take that uniqueness and suppress it as much as possible. They don't want us to be great. They don't want us to be geniuses. They want us to just conform to them so that they can rule over us. You cannot rule over a great person. Why? Because like you just said, Mark, you're a nonconformist. You can't be ruled. Why? Because you're going to say, well, what if I don't want to do this? What if I don't want to obey your laws? What if I think your laws are silly? Well, that makes you dangerous. Geniuses are dangerous. Have you noticed that geniuses are almost never appreciated until they're dead? Because when they're alive, they're a threat. When they're dead, they're no longer a threat. Now you can just take advantage of what they contributed. So our genius, our uniqueness makes us a threat to the rulers of this world human and non-human and that's why the, i think the more control and power that these people and entities have the more rules that they're going that they create in order to suppress us more and more and now they've got us to the point where we just police ourselves you know if i say something because like, you know, I, I live in northern california not exactly a, a bastion of, of a free-thinking conservatism it's, it's very conformist i mean there are people I'll go to a store and there'll still be people who are double masked because they are, they're conformists. And if I were to say anything that goes against what is considered, you know, politically correct, the police don't have to come get me. The, my fellow, my neighbors will rat me out. They'll chastise me. They'll say, oh no, you can't say that thing. You can't you know, you, you can't say these things about women or minorities or gay. It happened to be a minority, but, you know, I, there are certain things that you just can't say. We police, we have society policing each other. And it just, it, it, it it's, I, I think it's not a good place for us to be because we're just not being who we were meant to be. Right. Right. Well said. And, uh, you know, I think part of this is, this idea or maybe the cult of progress. And I think that's inextricably related and connected to what's developed in the university, specifically in the minds of those who adhere to this sort of scientific materialistic worldview where they, you know, the ends justify the means and they see themselves as this sort of tip of the sphere of progress. And, you know, they need to eliminate anyone who stands in their way towards that ideal. And it's really not all that different from any religious cult that, you know, puts a utopian carrot on a stick in front of its followers and, you know, whips them to go in whichever direction they see fit, right? I mean, this is kind of what we have going on today where, yeah, on a sociological level, we're all divided over the meanings of, you know, this and that. I heard you put it one way on your interview with Sam where you said, you know, we're all kind of using the same vocabulary but with different dictionaries. Yeah, I mean, that's just straight out of the Tower of Babel story in many ways. So, 
I do kind of want to shift gears into sure. maybe the historicity of all this stuff. And, and like, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the term elite. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked a, a, a bunch about these groups, whether it's the, you know, the ones out in the open or the ones that hide in the shadows. And many people still have the doubt, like, well, the, you know, it's all just too good to be true. How do these people get in league with these dark entities? How do they just pull off all these, you know, terrible acts? And you even kind of mentioned that same doubt that was expressed to you where somebody kind of childishly said, well, oh, if you believe, you know, you believe God's real, then how do you explain all these evil things, right? And I'm wondering, you know, let's where do we start to understand? Because obviously the Bible... I don't think you you subscribe to the idea that, you know, we're living in a 6,000-year biblical timeline. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but how far back do you think this all starts? I mean, is it fair to say that the Bible is, let's say, like a clearing of the house in ancient times? <laughs> like they saw everything had kind of gone awry with the first go-around, and they're like, okay, we need to correct this and— yeah, maybe that happened more than once, right? We have the flood, and then we have Christ and other events and miracles that have happened since then. So, yeah, I, I don't know. How do we go about understanding, like, where we are now from this perspective of history and learning from history, at least from your perspective? Sure. So the age of the earth is always a controversial thing, the age of humanity. My short answer is I don't know exactly how old the earth is. And it's tough to definitively say because you have to ask yourself, from what perspective are you talking about? One thing that has been discovered, and I'll, I'll talk briefly about the whole age of the earth thing, then I'll, I want to get back to what you, you were talking about. So the way we measure time has changed. And I don't mean that from a, a hypothetical standpoint. I mean, physically, the way we measure time, because we it's been discovered in the last 20 years that the speed of light is slowing down. This was something that was first proposed by a couple of, of scientists in Australia. I think they were Norman and Denton were their names in the 90s, that they noticed that the speed of they thought that the speed of light was slowing down. You know, not dramatically, but not, nothing would affect anything, you know, in your day-to-day life. But it was slowing down you know, immeasurably, predictably, and exponentially in very small increments. Now, of course, like with any, you, you spoke before about how, you know, our institutions act like religions and they do. Scientists are, even though they claim to be biased, they're actually the most religious people you could ever meet because if you, you don't believe me, just say something that goes against scientific orthodoxy and you'll never get a job again. So these two scientists, they were kind of laughed at. Oh, no, we know the speed of light is constant. It's 186,000 miles per, hour, uh, per second, blah, blah, blah. But then, as with anything, scientists have to be dragged kicking and screaming to the truth. And they now acknowledge, OK, yeah, those two guys, you know, 30 years ago were right. The speed of light is slowing down. What does that mean? That means that um, tomorrow, the speed of light is going to be minutely slower than it is today, which also means that yesterday it was minutely faster. You take it back 100 years ago, it was even faster. And you, and these, and you go back even further, speed of light was faster. In fact, it's it's. In, in, in an exponential way, the, the scientists uh, postulated that if you go back to the, the first century, roughly the time of Jesus, the speed of light would have been a hundred times faster than it is now. 
take you back even further to the beginning of when of, of our recorded history. So you're talking about, you know, between eight to 10,000 years ago. I mean, that was the time of Noah, the time of Adam and Eve, whatever. That would have mean that the speed of light would have been 10,000 times faster than it is now. What would that mean? Well, it would mean a lot. One thing would mean that we would actually, people back then would have been extremely smart, much smarter than us. Why? Because when you look at the way our brains work, they, you know, our, our, our dendrites, which look like trees in our brain, they don't touch each other when we have a thought. There, there's a little bit of space between them and an electric pulse passes through them. And that's how thoughts are formed. The electric impulses, impulses are synapses firing. Well, that's light. So if the speed of light was 10,000 times faster 10,000 years ago, we would have been thinking much faster. And maybe that explains how we, how people created the pyramids and done other supernatural things that we consider supernatural because their minds were working so much faster. Their perceptions were so much greater than ours. And we're technically dumber every day, which, you know, it's, not, it's hard to argue against that. Wow. But what that also means is that time would have been measured differently because we measure time by decay. If the speed of light was faster, the decay is that's going to affect the decay. So when someone asks me how old do I think the earth is, the question is, you have to tell me what the speed of light was like at the beginning. Because it could look it, so we could be measuring it completely wrong. We could be measuring it based on what the speed of light is today. So so that's that. So how old? Don't know. But I do know that there was a beginning. The universe is not finite. That would be impossible. Again, second law of thermodynamics. If, if the universe was infinitely old, it would be one temperature. And it's not. The universe is, is you know, it's hot and has, you know, stars and whatnot. So that means that there was a definite, there was a definitive beginning. Then you no know, scientists don't dispute that. So however old it was, there was a beginning, and that beginning, that spark of creation was and then there had to be the creator, whoever created whatever created the world had to be the first cause a cause with no preceded causes. So whatever the first cause of the universe was, if, if, if the universe is in effect, the law of causality states that whatever caused the universe had to be greater than the universe and outside of the universe, transcendent. And that's the concept, and that's where you get the concept of God, that you had to be greater than and outside of the universe. So when he created us, when he created the universe, he, you know, as I said, he, he started with these he created first the spiritual realm and our realm. And I wanted to give, give you a chance to chime in there. I think you were, we want to say something. No, I'm just following along. Okay. Okay. So, so your question is how do we get to the beginnings of, of, of where we have these, but people have these relationships with these entities. And let me know if I'm going down the path you want me to, or if, or if, I, or if I'm not, and you can just you know, course correct. Here's how the narrative goes. You know, God, Jehovah, you know, he creates the two realms, the spiritual realm and the material realm. He creates mankind in order to, to um, basically be, he, he puts a spirit in man, and man is this spiritual and material hybrid. Then there's the, then there's the fall. And, you know, humanity falls, and because they wanted to be like the Elohim, they were, you know, they wanted to take a shortcut to what God's will is. And I think God's will for us, God's plan for us is to be with him, to dwell with him, basically to hang out with us. That's what God wanted. And I know we have this idea that he's this, you know, big guy on a cloud, 
with a beard, with a hammer in his hand, ready to bop us over the head every time he does something wrong. That's not who he is. That's not how he's portrayed in the beginning and at the end, which is where, he, where I think he's his true self. He just wants to he wanted to create children and he wanted to hang out with them and just and learn with them and grow with them and, and exchange stories. So the Bible, you were asking about what its purpose is. The Bible is basically, it's Jehovah's story. It's a set of stories. It's all these, the, what we call the books of the Bible. They're all stories. They are stories to help us get to know our creator. They're, you know, the Bible is not a handbook. It's, it's not a guide to life. It's not a set of rules for you to live by. Some of those aspects are in it, but the but the Bible is a set of stories so that we can know who our Creator is, what He's like, what He wants from us, what He expects, and what He likes, what He doesn't like, how He feels. That is what the that's what the these books of the Bible actually are. And if you go into it from this standpoint of thinking that it's, a, you know, this is a, a God to life or that it's a, a comprehensive history book. Well, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to, it's going to trip you up because it's not meant to be a comprehensive history book. It's meant to be a story. How do stories work? Stories have, a, they're a series of, you have, you have a character, you have a conflict, you have a resolution. That's a story. Will all the details be in the story? No, but the truth will always be there. So if I tell you a story about my childhood, you can extrapolate from that what kind of person I am, what kind of people were around me, what my likes and dislikes are, what kind of character I have. You can, and I can, you can glean all that if I just if I tell you a five minute story about myself growing up. Do you know all the details of every day of the of, of my life? No, but you know it. But that story can give you enough inference that you can get to know me. And that's what the Bible is. So the Bible doesn't have every single detail. It's not supposed to. It wasn't intended to. It's not a textbook. It is a set of stories. I gave the analogy on Tinfoil Hat that it's like the movie Pulp Fiction, where you have you know a set of stories that are interrelated, interconnected, not necessarily even chronological all the time. But once you see the whole story, it you, you get it. Even though it's not, you know, it just, even though it's not as, as you know, I'll have all the details, even though it's kind of out of order, it tells one big story. And that's the whole point of it. And so when we get to the, the era of the flood, this is because this is where the origin of these secret societies and these, these relationships between the humanity and the Elohim start. So after Adam and Eve start having kids and Cain kills Abel and spills his blood on the ground, which, by the way, when blood hits the ground, that's, that is how the veil, the barrier between our two realms, the spiritual and the material realm, it is thinned. And that barrier kind of breaks down and it allows um, spiritual entities into this world. That's something important that maybe we'll touch on later. But as they... As, as you know, mankind starts to multiply on the earth, as the Bible says, they had daughters, and the Elohim saw that the that these women were. It says in, in most translations that they were beautiful, and they probably were. But what is what's really saying that in the actual language, in the original language, is that they were fit extensions. They were fit to do what these fallen Elohim wanted, which was to bear them children. And this is where we get. And they went into these women and they married them. And they bore children, and these were the Nephilim, the giants. 
but what's kind of lost in there is that it says they took wives. Well, it kind of sounds like it, it was kind of against the will of the women. But you, know, you have to look at the language and remember that the Bible was not written in English and it wasn't written to a 21st century audience. It was written in ancient languages to ancient people. And we have to keep their tradition and their language structure in mind. When it says they took wives, taking a wife doesn't mean, hey, I see this woman, she's pretty, I'm just going to snatch her. No, the act, the, the act of taking a wife meant you had to deal with her father. And you had to give the father a some type of gift in order to get his daughter's hand. And we have you know, some similar traditions uh, to this day. In the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch, which is, again, is not a part of the biblical canon, although I think it should be because I, I, it's, it's a remarkable book. It's, it's quoted elsewhere in the Bible. Even Jesus refers to it himself. But in, that, in the book of Enoch, it says specifically that in, that in exchange for their daughter's hands, these the people who gave their daughters away, they got secrets from these angels, from these Elohim. They were taught magic. They were taught rituals. They were taught you know, how the movement of the stars in the sky. They were taught enchantments. They were taught the resolving of enchantments. They were taught spiritual secrets that they weren't intended to have. This is the origin of the elites. This was the first partnership where the elites and the Elohim made a deal. If you give us value that we want, humans, we will give you a certain amount of knowledge that you weren't intended to have. And when you have that knowledge, you will be more powerful because you will have knowledge that other people don't. So that's the, that is the origin of secret societies. That's the origin of the elites. And it's been carried on in the same fashion to this day. Right. They, the elites to this day, have a partnership with these entities and they keep it secret and they keep their secrets to themselves. And the best way to make sure that no one you know, comes and, and takes away their power is to again, keep us from being unique, keep, keep us suppressed, keep us indoctrinated, and keep us fighting amongst ourselves and, you know, being too busy watching concerts and sports to actually to take a step back and say what's really going on in the world. Right. Wow. Now, on this topic of Elohim and the fallen angels and these sort of agreements between, we'll just call it, entities and humans there's this idea that the nephilim and i've recently talked about it on this show i had this gentleman on the sam show as well his name's paul stobbs he considers himself a sort of contrarian christian but a christian nonetheless i think you would like his channel i'll send you more info about it afterwards but he had a really compelling argument that he made when he essentially just correlated all these different tribal and ancient and pagan religions and showed how they're sort of similar in a way that could be interpreted as there were people interacting with the Nephilim and yes. they had a sort of exchange with them, maybe this sort of these deals where, okay, you guys worship me and I'll give you fire, I'll give you weapons, I'll give you whatever, you know, this sort of Promethean pact that was made. And he goes and takes it a step further and says, you know, nowadays the Nephilim is remembered, of course, by a lot of these tribal and ancient cultures, but it's also sort of memorialized in modern form as the clown 
which, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. But okay. he, he's also sort of connected it to this idea of the wild man, right? And obviously people who research Sasquatch might be thinking like, okay, does that mean Sasquatch? And I also heard a recent conversation that maybe I'm going to connect some dots here. So bear with me. Sure. Go ahead. But, um, the, uh, the statement was declared that, well, the Nephilim, a.k.a. these, you know, giants, they were sort of, I don't know, like possessing these more rudimentary men, like the first wave of creation of man, like these Cro-Magnon, Neanderthal, Sasquatch-type people. And, you know, who are human like us, but just wild versions of us, according to this theory. You know, I wonder if that is why there's so much mystery around the Sasquatch and is sort of, you know, falls in the realm of cryptid rather than wild animal, because it has this inherent connection to ancient things that are being suppressed. It has this sort of, it's an acknowledgement of our hairy brothers that are talked about, I think, at some point in the Bible. I may be mixing this up with Sumerian mythology, but there's something about a hairy guy named Enkidu. Again, that might come from like a Sumerian text rather than the Bible, But I'm under the impression that a lot of the Bible was based on, you know, even older cultures and things like that. At least that's a theory that's out there. So making sense of all this, as I attempt to kind of wrap in all those threads I just splayed out, what are your thoughts on this idea that the giant, the Nephilim, existed after the flood and, you know, maybe in... You know, non-corporeal form or even in a, a physical form with the Sasquatch. Do you think there's that's a valid idea? I, I do. And here, so here, yeah, let me, let me address a couple, a few of those things. So first of all, you made a point that, you know, that the, the Nephilim and the fallen angels were a part, were, um, the, the stories about them were adopted into other cultures. Yeah, they were. Okay, so let's take a step back. One of the one of the criticisms of the Bible is that okay, you know, the Bible was written you know around started being written around you know 1500 AD, excuse me, BC more or less. But there are you know more ancient books. There's other ancient societies, the Sumerians with the Gilgamesh, and so forth and so on, which is technically true. The you know the Bible did not start being written until the time of you know the Exodus from Egypt. So there were world empires before that. So. The, but you know you, you can't or i i don't think it's valid to say that you know the bible is less valid because it's not the oldest book <laughs> that is i mean that would be like saying you know if i write a book about tomorrow about 9 11 and i'm accurate and but there's a book that was written you know 20 years ago about 9 11 that's not accurate well does it matter that the older book it was there first if the if the newer book actually has the better information. Right. So I'll just let you let people sit with that. But I believe that all of the Nephilim stories, they it says in the Bible that it, it actually the Bible acknowledges that there were other legends. It called the Nephilim the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Basically the Bible is saying that yeah, these Nephilim, they were the legendary figures. They were the you know the they were the ones that people were telling stories about. 
they were you know the, the demigods i mean if you take it forward to the greeks they that was hercules that was achilles that was you know all these these stories that all cultures have about the gods every culture has the same story about the so-called gods coming down having intercourse with women and producing offspring it's not just the bible it's not just in greek mythology it's in roman mythology it's in ancient mesoamerican mythology which just tells you this it actually happened they're just different versions of the same story like you know if you, if, if 10 people see an accident you're going to have 10 different stories about it and with different colors and different flavors but the accident still happened and so yeah so what happened after the and so to answer your next question or to, to your next point does the nephilim exist nephilim exist after the flood absolutely the bible says it explicitly it says in genesis chapter 6 the nephilim were in the earth in those days the pre-flood days and also after that so there was another incursion there were other incursions of nephilim after the period of the flood the flood wiped out the ones that were there but they did it again how do we know that again if you can look at the bible there when the israelites were were coming into the promised land from the exodus they when they were about to go into the land of what we call israel moses sent out scouts to scout out the land and they came back and they said hey you know they're giants in the land nephilim they called them that they said there were nephilim in the land you know the story of david and goliath Goliath was a giant. He was a Nephilim. So yeah, they absolutely existed after that. They were the legendary figures. Now, so maybe you may ask, well, if they're still around, you know, why don't we see giants to this day? I think that they became diminished for a few reasons. I think the, the pre-flood Nephilim were probably the most powerful ones. I think because the Earth's environment was very different then. I think it it lent itself more to that type of growth. And I also think that I think that um, God limited it himself as well. Because people live shorter lives, um, you know. If you look at the pre-flood world and and the Bible, people lived between six hundred and nine hundred years. That's a long time, and you'd have to think that human beings were larger back then. You know, they, they're living longer; their bones are growing more. I don't think so. I, I don't think we need to we can superimpose our current physical stature on them. I think that the people in Noah's time, human beings, were probably much taller than us which means that the giants to them would have been, let's say, I don't know, let's say Noah and his family were like 10 feet tall. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't have any evidence of that, but I'm just, then well, a giant to them would have to be like, what, 50 feet tall or taller. And I think that as you know, time went on and we became physically smaller, I think the, the Nephilim, as they incurred, were, were physically smaller. I think um, Goliath was supposed to be like nine feet tall, which you know is tall for us, but you know, not as tall as someone who was 50 feet or, or even taller. Right, right. So, well, and, you know, you make oh, so many great points. I can't help but in and yeah, kind of touch on a few of them. And your last point you're just wrapping up with there, I've read about that concept in a book that I've talked about a bunch on this show. It's called The Secret History of the World by Mark Booth. And he mentions that there are, you know, ancient ideas or texts, spiritual ideas, maybe from Greece, or I don't know exactly the origin of this idea, but he talks about how, you know, the ancients talk about the realm we're in getting denser and denser. And that really coincides with what you're describing with the the speed of light. And I think it tracks with what you're saying about the giants too and how you know the the dimensions and the physics of this realm that we're in 
are subject to some sort of change. And I don't think it's random or chaotic. I think it's actually maybe like a pendulum swing where we go really far away and then come really close back to that, you know, creative spark, that, you know, emanation of the creator, however that's defined. But it's so interesting to think that, you know, the flood was kind of like the accident you described, right? Where maybe it wasn't an accident. There was a lot of thought that went into it, but all these cultures around the world have different stories or similar stories with different characters of this event. As far away as Australia and and South America, even some Native Americans in North America have stories like that. And the, the reason I kind of wanted to get the Nephilim into this conversation is because that's an area of forbidden history that I'm extremely fascinated in, North America, and what happened here before the official discovery, the doctrine of discovery, and all the <laughs> colonization, you know. And a big aspect of that is the Native Americans, you know, interactions with giants, which weren't yeah. always you know, good for either party. And they even have stories of, you know, giants stealing people and native tribes chasing giants into caves and lighting them on fire and, you know, finally vanquishing them and things like, uh, like this, where, you know, it just adds a whole nother dimension. You know, you have these whole groups of people that were, you know, out, outside of the domain of the dogmatic empires who were trying to sort of, you know, say what was apocrypha and what wasn't, right? So you have all these natives who, you know, as they're called now, Indians, right? That's what they want to be called. No more indigenous. <laughs> that word. Oh, is that true? Okay, I didn't know that. I yeah, know I think that's. I think that's a 2023 update. But some of my okay, native yeah. friends have told me that, like, now we like Indian. It's just what we're used to, you know. But that's cool. That's what they want. I mean, it's like you know, calling a midget a little person. Okay, I think little person sounds worse than midget. But you know, I'll, I'll call you whatever you want to be called. <laughs> right, 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 right. Midge has a little bit of like attitude to it, but <laughs> yeah. I, I think when it comes to the Native Americans, like they have this whole secret history that they've in some ways kept away from colonizers and other ways it's been sort of destroyed or forgotten because of the colonizers and their effect. But it just it's a realm that really fascinates me because the early explorers from Europe, they had all these very Christian centric ideas about North America. And nowadays we kind of dismiss all of those as racist and biased. But when these explorers were here, they were finding things like Hebrew inscriptions on rocks and ancient artifacts that could only come from the Fertile Crescent in the old world and other examples of even living artifacts where tribes had similar rituals to things that were still going on in Judaic groups or Judaic tribes in Israel or not Israel then, but the Middle East. Right. So yeah, it's fascinating that, you know, there's this sort of hidden connection between these two worlds that now I think we really need to re-examine, especially when the social justice warrior university (laughs) types are trying to erase any history that they judge as racist. I mean, one example is at Yale University, there's all these beautiful grotesques that decorate the 
gothic collegiate, you know, walls and whatnot. And one of them was a pilgrim pointing like a musket at a Native American who had a bow in his hand and a shield. And they they went and they cemented over the musket, which oh, wow. when you look at it then, it's like, well, now the Native American's the only guy with the weapon, and it kind of <laughs> looks like he's the bad guy, right? So right. they're trying to do something that they think is like correcting for the positive when they're really just, you know, pronouncing the negative even further. And now, unfortunately, they just cemented over the whole thing altogether. So you just completely now future generations will have no idea that was even there. Yeah. You know, history is history and truth is truth. It's not always pretty, but I mean, you can't, don't try to protect me from myself. You know, I, I don't like someone to tell who's trying to protect me from my own history. Right. Just let us know what happened. And, this world is way more fascinating than we've been taught. And I, there's so much that's suppressed that, you know, you're learning about all the time that I'm learning about all the time. Cause I I've read books about, you know, the, the giants in ancient America and they, you know, the, the Nephilim mounds that you'll find in Ohio that looked like they were burial spots for giants. So yeah, were they here? Sure. And, you know, Columbus was not the first person to sail to the Americas. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that ancient civilizations came to the Americas for, for whatever length of time. So that's there and that's true. And all the different stories, as I said before, stories, even when they diverge on the details, the truth is stories are still about the truth. And the truth is still there in all those stories. So as we, as we just talked about a minute ago, a few minutes ago, all cultures have the stories about the gods coming down and appropriating with women. They all have stories about giants. They have stories about interacting with these spiritual entities. I want to jump on that. There's something you brought up about a segment ago. So going back to the speed of light being faster and our brains being faster, I think that we were able to perceive the spiritual world better back in ancient times. I think they were able to actually see these Elohim. They when they didn't worship, we have this idea that we that the ancient people worship these gods and they when they make like stone statues of them and wooden statues and they were just they just made them up and that's what they worship. No, I think those idols, as they're called in the Bible, were representations of what people actually saw and interacted with. Quickly, Babel. You know, the 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 story of Babel after the flood. You know, God tells Noah's family, okay, look, you know, we wiped out, we have this flood to wipe out all the Nephilim, because frankly, if, the, if God had not wiped out the Nephilim pre-flood, he would have wiped out humanity. They were cannibals. They were eating people. I think the Bible strongly implies that Noah and his family may be the only pure humans left on the earth. So wow. he says to Noah and his family, go multiply, build, spread out, build the earth. They do the opposite. Instead of his descendants, instead of spreading out, they concentrate in uh, the plains of Shinar, uh, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and they build this tower to reach the heavens, not because of height. They weren't trying to, they didn't think that heaven wasn't, that God was in the sky. No, they were building a, a, a artificial mountain because that's where the Elohim would interact with man. You know, God had his holy mountain in, in uh, Mount Moriah. You know, there was a mountain, Mount Horeb. There's Mount Bashan, where it's believed that the first Elohim came down on that mountain to they transverse the spiritual to the physical world in order to procreate with women. At Babel, under the dictator Nimrod, they built their own tower to do blood sacrifices on top. You see something you can see something similar at Chichen Itza in Cancun in the Cancun area, 
they it's the same thing as ziggurat and at the top it, you used to be able to climb it you can't climb it anymore but i was able to do that in one of my earlier trips at the top is a sacrifice sacrificial temple where people would do blood sacrifices to commune with the gods so after and, and so they were making this tower in babel to in order basically to invade heaven to get to into the heavens and god said they would have succeeded but i think their brains were so much faster they knew what they were doing god said if he, if he didn't confuse their language they would have been able to transverse from the physical realm to the spiritual. So he confused their languages, and he also disinherited the nations. So if you spoke the same language, you know, people got together in the groups, they spoke the same language, they went off and they started their own nations. God disinherited them. Jehovah said, you know what, I'm going to have my own nation through whom I will interact with man, which will be Israel. But he put all the other nations under the, the watchers who were, other, who were Elohim. And he said the other 70 nations you know, he told the Elohim to you're over them, those nations. And well, that's how we'll do things from now on. Now, all those Elohim, they fell because they allowed themselves to be worshipped. Why? Because people could see them and they worship them. And worship is an exchange of spiritual value. When you worship something, you are giving it your spiritual energy. And you become like what you worship. That's in the book of Psalms. It says that you become like what you worship, which is why God wants us to worship him, not because of his ego, but because he wants us to be like him. So whatever you give your value and your energy to, you become like it. Right. And God is the only, Jehovah is the only entity who can handle worship. Anything else gets corrupted. Anyone else gets corrupted by it. So these ancient, these Elohim, these angels, these fallen angels started getting becoming worshipped, and they got corrupted by it, and they craved it the same way you crave a drug, and they wanted more of it, and so they started you know, you know, positioning themselves as the gods of these people, the you know uh, Moloch and and Baal and Zor, you know, Zoroasters and you know the gods of the Egyptians, you know uh, Typhon and and Osiris and Isis. They, they took on all these names of these different cultures, and they became their gods, and they accepted their worship. And that's how they did all that. That's how they interacted with them, and they all fell. And that's, by the way, is the origin of war. The origin of war is these entities wanting to conquer new lands to get new worshipers. Human beings, we don't want to go to war. No one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, you know what I want to do today? I want to get a gun and march into another country and just take their stuff. No, most people, we want to live our lives, want to have a house, wife or husband, kids, and you know, and food and just have a good time. The only people who want to go to war are the elites. But remember, the elites are controlled by these entities. They're the ones who want to conquer because they want more worship. And that's what it really comes down to. Uh, even human beings, when that's why I think celebrities go nuts so often is because they get worshipped. I mean, you ever been to a concert? Right. What are you doing? You're worshiping that. You're giving all your spiritual in energy to whoever happens to be on stage. Right. And it corrupts it. So anyway, that's kind of the that's kind of the origin of, of worship. And that's why we have the you know that's why we have the, the elites have these partnerships because they're buying the jockey for position. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean it really just that understanding of worship really just adds a whole nother dimension to pop culture, modern culture, and what we pay our attention to, you know? I mean, so many people are, you know, fixated on things that don't serve them, you know? And I'll just leave it at that because you would. Let me ask you a quick question, Mark. Have you, sure. are, are you a sports fan? 
Well, I'm a martial artist, so I, I do like MMA, but I no, I'm not really a sports well, fan. That, that's fine. But I mean, but you probably know people who are. Of and course. what I noticed once I realized this whole worship thing is that people who, who are fans of a certain sports team, they take on the identity of the sports team. Right. You may have noticed that, like, you know, I, I grew up in L.A., and so the Raiders were, was a football team that, you know, they, they moved around since then. But people who worship the Raiders, who are Raiders fans, they act like, you know, they, that about, you know, the Raiders are supposed to be like, you know, they're the bad guys. They're kind of the villains. That's sort of their motif. People would act like that. You know, people who are Boston Celtics fans, because I grew up a Laker fan, and I would, the Celtics fans would act like the, you know, the Celtics mascot. You know, they were all into, you know, they were into fighting and all that sorts of things. But so my whole point is that if you, when you worship something, you become like it. And that even goes down to something as silly as sports. I mean, again, sports is, I enjoy sports a little bit, but it's silly that we, that people spend so much money and their time on it. But you will take on the personality of your team if you worship that team. It's just, that's proof right there that you become like what you worship. So you really need to be careful about it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, on the, the point of sacrifice, you mentioned seeing the pyramid at Chichen Itza. That's fascinating. What what is it about blood that you wanted to get into? Because I I think there's something really fascinating about what you said in your calendly in the calendly prompt that I gave you, and it's interesting the synchronicity because today I was listening to something about Padre Pio, who's a sort of he now he's a saint, but at the time he was kind of like a. <laughs> outlaw friar like the catholic okay. church was trying to lock him down for performing all these miracles and you know allegedly he could do things like bilocate and all these other amazing miraculous things but at one point he demonstrated the stigmata which is like a wound that cannot heal you know he was in all these spiritual battles on the astral plane or maybe higher realms and you know, one of the results of this was this stigmata that occurred. And it just, that kind of struck me as interesting when they said like, well, the wounds couldn't heal. They were like, you know, their, their cause was on a different plane, you know? And yeah, yeah there's something about blood that I think just goes beyond our understanding of, you know, what we are as humans. So what do you think yeah. about that? I mean, not Padre Pio aside, unless you do have some thoughts on Padre sure. Pio, but yeah. So I again, when I was growing up, I was I had a scientific mind. I wanted to. I initially wanted to be a doctor when I was when I first went to college. It didn't really work out for me that way. But I've always had a scientific mind, and because of that, I kind of even though I, I acknowledged that there was there was a God who I can't see and all that kind of stuff. I really didn't pay much attention to what I thought was what I considered the supernatural. I thought that was just you know people were nuts. But, you know, the more I learn about the spiritual realm and how much more real it is in ours, like, yeah, I, I don't have any problem believing in that, you know, the st that stigmata that that really happened because that's spiritual energy. And, was and that's why, you know, when I, I listen to shows like yours and like, you know, Sam Tripoli shows, even though I have my Christian friends say, well, why do you listen to that? He talks, you know, they talk about all these kind of supernatural, strange stuff. I'm like, yeah, but that's because that stuff's real. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not real. Back to the blood aspect. In the, if you study these occult rituals, and occult just means hidden, when you look at the rituals of these beings who are, of these people who are summoning 
spiritual entities, be they Elohim, be they demons, which by the way, I don't think I, I covered this I worldly quickly. The entities we call demons are the spirits of physically dead Nephilim. Okay. Nephilim, when they die, they're just like, they're, they're hybrids. They're part spirituals, part physical, just like us. But human beings, when we die, according to Christian philosophy, we're going to one of two places. We either go to the presence of God or we go to the grave or Hades until the final judgment. Nephilim, according to the, the book of Enoch, when they die, their spirits are cursed, are doomed to just wander the earth seeking embodiment. So that's why people become possessed by demons if you play around in that world, or some people do it intentionally because they want that possession. So they are so demons always want embodiments. They are the spirits of the dead Nephilim who no longer have physical bodies. I want to um, put that out there because I didn't before. So we get to the, to blood. When you hear about these rituals, they always involve either blood or sex or a combination of the two. Why? What do those two things have in common? Those two rituals, those two things have life energy. Okay. Sex is pretty obvious. You get life through sex. You know, you have intercourse with, you know, a male and female, have intercourse, they can produce a new life, a baby. Blood also has life. It says in the book of Leviticus, the life of something is in is in the blood. So there is something special about blood. Blood has life energy. And that life energy, for whatever reason, when it is spilled on the ground, on the earth, it thins that veil between the spiritual realm and the and our physical realm and it allows spiritual energy to come through and i think a lot so of course you have those hidden rituals but i think there are a lot of rituals out in the open air that are happening that we don't realize what they are i think a lot of wars when there's bloodshed there's there's more spiritual energy 9 11 would not surprise me if that had a lot to do with I mean, there was all kinds of symbology around that. We could spend a whole show. I'm sure you've, you know, you've talked about it. You know, Sam's show and some other, lots of, every conspiracy show has talked about all the rituals that were involved in 9-11, the twin towers, what they represented, you know, the twin columns of Boaz and Yaquin. And there was a lot of bloodshed. And that brought about, I think that brought in spiritual entity. And our nation has never been the same. I'll give you another example. Probably the biggest act of bloodshed in the last hundred or so years was World War II. World War II, massive amounts of blood was shed. What happened right after World War II? Roswell. You have, what was Roswell? I think it was, because I don't I don't believe in aliens to the extent that they are biological entities someplace else in, in outer space. That's, that stretches the imagination because the anthropic principle, the fact that, I mean, the idea that the earth as, it's, as we understand it is so rare in our universe to be able to sustain life. And they might think is if there were aliens, if they if you, if there was this advanced race that lived millions of light years away and they could travel that far, why wouldn't they they would either conquer us or help us? And they don't do either. When whenever you hear what aliens have oh, so-called aliens say, all they come down here is, is, is to say is basically the same message as this the Nakash, the serpent in the garden. Man can be like God and the Bible is wrong. You mean to tell me that you're gonna travel a billion light years? Tell me the Bible's wrong? Seriously? No, I think the, I think these are are, are um, fallen angels. But but again, that was a, that was a lot of bloodshed in World War II. And then you have the you have the aliens, and then our technology just takes off like crazy. I mean, in the last hundred years, we've made technological advances that we hadn't made in the previous uh, you know three thousand years. 
And I, and I think part and parcel of it is that bloodshed allowed these spiritual entities and that, and that spiritual energy to come into our realm and, you know, the elites took advantage of it. The wow. Operation Paperclip. I think that the Nazis were doing a whole lot of occult stuff and they brought all that knowledge <laughs> over here and you know, our technology went from, we went from, you know, horse and buggy in the early 20th century to up to jet planes in just a matter of a few decades and computers and so forth and so on. So, so all that to say is that blood has power in it and the most powerful blood is innocent blood. Right. So, and that. And so here's a part that I think is going to blow the minds of, 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 of your Christian listeners. So, so the innocent blood has the most, has the most power, which is why the, there are these hor- horrific sacrifices of children, which, I mean, just as a father, it like breaks my heart to know that, you know, children are being tormented this way or, and, and having their bloodshed and being killed in order to, you know, do these rituals. But technically, according to Christian philosophy, who had the most innocent blood ever? That would be Jesus. Jesus, according to Christianity, never sinned. He so if you can, your children have innocent blood because children haven't done very much wrong. Well, Jesus never did anything wrong. He had God. He was basically God's avatar. Jesus said, "I never." He, he was a, he was born a human being with the Spirit of God in him, and he, and he says, "I do nothing of my own. I only do what the Father tells me." So basically. Jesus was God's, I mean, God, Jesus was God's avatar. If you put it into video game terms, God is controlling Jesus. Jesus gave his will completely over to God, which is why he never sinned. So he had the most innocent blood, which means he should have never died. So he was killed unjustly, meaning that if God is a God of justice, and if he is, God is always and completely right and just. That's his nature. He would have to give Jesus life back. He would have to give him back infinite life because Jesus should never have died physically. But when he shed his blood on the in the crucifixion on the cross, his blood hit the ground. What does that do? That again opened up a portal, and it would have been since he since innocent blood is the most powerful blood. His blood was the most powerful because it was the most innocent. That portal is what is what allows believers to when they die transverse from this material plane to heaven. So Jesus' blood hitting the ground is why Christians are saved by the blood of Jesus, because his blood allowed us to, if you're a believer, to transverse from heaven, I mean, from earth to heaven. And that's what I do on faith by reason. I try to take these things to a practical, to a practical end. Yeah. Wow. Ed, you just laid a whole lot out there and I just want to follow (laughs) up on that. I mean, it is, as you said, it is mind blowing. With the recent so-called, and I'm waving my finger quotes up for the audio listeners here, (laughs) this alien body that was found in Mexico City. I mean, I couldn't think of a better time to have this conversation just to point out how, you know, fake and utterly dumb that whole story is. Because, yeah, these beings that we're seeing, they're not they're not corporeal they don't have bodies to be found in the ground from a thousand years ago these gray aliens are you know demons and as you put it most likely and i tend to agree with this interpretation exactly what the bible describes as these fallen angels the sons and daughters of these fallen angels who you know corrupted certain individuals and yeah i mean it's intense but i want to just reframe all this after what you said about 
final judgment. Because yeah. recently I've been, again, like I said, researching Yale University, Skull and Bones, the Secret Society is a big part of why I started researching all this. And one of the things that really stood out to me in an excellent book titled Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, I've interviewed the guy who put this book together, although there's six or seven authors that have contributed to this book. At one point in the book, on page 405, he describes the Christians that started Yale and founded New Haven. And I don't know, you know, what denomination you are. I would love to learn about, you know, the distinctions because it is still a bit murky. But the New Havenites at the onset of New Haven's founding were hyper-Calvinists. That's how Chris Milligan describes them. And they based some of their beliefs on the Synod of Dort, which I believe that's in Deutschland, that's a Dutch place, Dort, in 1618. And it's based on a total dependence on God and predestination. And these beliefs are that all humans are inherently wicked and offend God, that there is an elect that God chose to be saved regardless of their actions and how deserving, and that Jesus died for those special elect, not for everyone. And once God has chosen an elect, they are saved by irresistible grace, no matter what, and that Mm -hmm. these elect or saints cannot fall from grace once saved. And the most hyper-Calvinists, which the New Haven colony were, uh, hold to the tenet of the doctrine of reprobation, the belief that God's God purposefully foreordains damnation. In other words, there are those who are predestined to hell, some being the elect doing God's work through sanctified devilish acts, mm-hmm. regular hell's angels. And what I can't help but think when I hear you say that about final judgment is that the Nephilim have, I don't know, or these spirits, these entities, they've invaded certain sects and cults of people and given them this notion that, no, you guys need to bring about final judgment so you can free us. Right. I mean, because I, I like thinking from their point of view, yeah, they probably would want final judgment to come about already so they can get out of purgatory. Right. I mean, they, what do you think of all that, Ed? I mean, that kind of makes sense to me why the elites would want to try to end the world. (laughs) Okay. Wow. There's a lot. Let's start off with Calvinism. And, oh, I am not a Calvinist. I think that Calvinism has been so detrimental to, to, to true Christianity. I mean, I don't doubt that if you're a Calvinist, I'm not saying you're a bad person or it's not a personal judgment. I'm judging the doctrine, not the people. I just want to make that very clear, like especially when I talk about Catholicism. And I always get accused of being anti-Catholic. I am not against the Catholic people. I'm against the doctrine. Let's go back to, to, to Calvinism. The problem with Calvinism is it makes God unjust. It, it basically, it, it, if you believe in, in the Calvinist doctrine, you not believe in the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is not unjust. It is, it will be completely unjust to predestine anyone to hell. That is not just. It is also not just to predestine any predestine anyone to heaven. And that is unbiblical completely. Everyone is invited to God doesn't send anyone to hell. There is no one who will be hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire, whatever you want to call it. It's called all the things in the Bible. He 
no one will be in hell because God said, you know what, you're going to hell. The only reason you will be in hell is because you decided to reject the invitation to heaven. And you aren't sent there. Hell is simply, hell, hell is a separation. It's separation from God. That's really what it is. If you want to dwell with God, God wants to dwell with you. If you choose not to, you have that free choice. You can choose not to, but you will spend eternity in that position because we are all eternal beings. When these flesh bodies that we're driving around go into the ground, well, our spirit will still exist because our spirit is not material. Our spirit does not have mass. And we know from Einsteinian relativity, no matter what you think of Einstein, that that uh, time only affects is affected by things with mass, acceleration, and gravity. You have to have mass in order to be affected by time. If you do not have mass, then you are outside of physical time. You are eternal. So we're all eternal. And the question is, where will you spend your eternity? It, and it's only it's a it's binary, either in the presence of God or outside of the presence of God. And outside of the presence of God is what we call hell. And that's your choice. You get to decide that. And God is not going to force you. He gives you free will because he wants to be loved. And you cannot force someone to love you. That's antithetical. So that's why he gave us a free will. So there's that aspect. So the, the, the yeah, so Calvinism, unfortunately, basically makes God null and void. And it makes him an unfair tyrant by, by, by predestined. That is just, you have to be predestined. I, I don't have enough bad words for it. It is, it is, yeah, it's completely off. So the other thing you were talking about, um, I'm sorry, you talked about Calvinism. What was the other part? Well, and I think this all connects together under one umbrella, which is like these hyper-Calvinists kind of founded New Haven, and a lot of these okay. ideas made their way into the University yeah. okay. of Yale and Skull and Bones, mm. and a lot of people are like, well, why would the elite want to cause all these terrible events? And my thought is, well, what if they're trying to bring about final judgment because they're possessed by these beings that are waiting to the final judgment because... They're trapped there, right? They want to speed things up and get on with it. So they're like, well, hey, let's end the world. So then God comes and judges us all. How do we do that? Let's possess these people who have already succumbed to, you know, their own earthly sins and pleasures, right? The wealthy and the elite tend to be that stereotype, unfortunately. You know, they co coerce them into this possession. And, and then, yeah, I mean... Maybe it sounds fantastical to people, but it's it sounds like the truth to me. And I've been looking at this stuff for a while. What do you think about that? I think that, okay, I'm going to slightly, I'm going to say disagree, but I have a different point of view on, I, I don't think that these entities want final judgment because they know that they're going to get the short end of the stick. They they will be, when they're judged, they're, they've actually, they, they've been judged already, actually. They've been, they haven't been punished yet. The, the judgment has already happened because in, I think I talked early on, once God judges you, you no longer have any creativity. You are, you're, you have no more free will, yeah. which by the way is why these entities love our musicians so much because they can't do it on their own. They have no creativity. They have to rely on humans to create things. And, and I think the, the more, demonic influence you have in music, the more music sounds the same. You may notice that right now. Every music all sounds the same now. Or it either sounds the same or they just keep rehashing old beats. I mean, I'll listen to the radio and 
I'll hear a new singer singing a song from with you know beats from the seventies or from the eighties, right? Over and over again, and I'm thinking, where's your creativity? Why don't you come up with some new music? But movies are the same way. Movies have the same formula. There's no more creativity. And I think the the worse this world gets, the more demonic this world gets, the less creativity you'll see. But that's another. I'll do my movie critique another time. But I don't think they want the judgment here. But what I think they want is they want to thwart God's plan. Mm. Ultimately, they're nihilists. They know that they lose in the end. There's now, now maybe they. I mean, there's there's two schools of thought here. One school of thought is that they know that. Every, that, that they lose. And the only way they can hurt God is by making sure that as few people as possible spend eternity with him. They're basically playing spoilers. They're saying, all we want to do, we want to end this as soon as possible because we want to get as many people as possible to not choose to be with you. Mm. So that's one. The other is, well, maybe they, in their insanity, they're thinking, you know what? Well, let's, if we can make things happen our own way. If we can bring about the apocalypse our own way, we can control the apocalypse. So maybe it won't go the way, you know, God intends it to go in, in the prophetic books, like the book of revelation, which incidentally I'm, I'm doing a long series on my YouTube and rumble channels. And I'm um, on faith by reason.net. I'm up to like, I think 52 episodes. I'm doing a deep dive into it. But the point is that, you know, revelation, it makes it clear that they're going to get their final judgment. They don't want it. I don't think they want to be judged. I think they're either just playing spoilers, they're playing spoiler to try to get as many people outside of God's will, or they're trying to control the narrative and maybe say, you know what, if we do, if, if we can you know, control things and make the apocalypse happen our way, then maybe it won't happen God's way. Right. Well, and yeah, I'm just trying to make sense of this, you know, coming from my background, I have a lot of learning to do when it comes to just the Bible, what's been, you know, kept in the Bible, not even including the Apocrypha and all that. Although I did, I do have the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden. I highly recommend people get those for their bookshelf. Very interesting stuff in there. But yeah, this hyper-Calvinist faction of clergymen that founded New Haven and kind of left their stamp on New Englanders sort of philosophy in a lot of ways. You know, Cotton Mathers is probably one of the examples of this. People who grew up in New England are familiar with like the witch trials, probably more than other people in the country. But a lot of that stuff came from these sort of ideas of like, you know, the evils that they were doing were justified by the ends. Like so that you eliminating the witches, even though, you know, maybe they were actually good, innocent people who had gone astray or something like that. No, they had to die. Right. This is sort of, I think most people are familiar with this, but when it comes to secret societies, the Freemasons, the skull and bones, you know, and how they connect to World War II, 9-11, and all these other, you know, really genocidal events that were perpetrated by our own government, corporations, and cahoots with those governments, and, you know, it's really a, a state of affairs that boggles the mind and maybe they are like you know this says i know you take umbrage with it and rightly so i do too but maybe they do think they're like performing god's will somehow by doing evil things I and mean, what do you think yeah, about you, that you know mark here's the thing church and by church i don't mean the body of christ you know human 
uh, believes in Christ. I, I mean, the institutions, church has hurt so many people. Right. There are so many people who have been hurt by things like Calvinism, the hardcore Calvinism, and some of the hardcore Catholicism when people reject it. But it, it, it's people have rejected it and gotten out of it. But a lot of people have been hurt terribly by it, not only, you know, physically and emotionally, but but spiritually, because they, you know, they, they gravitate away from God because they say, you know, if, if God is truly what these people are saying he is, then I want no part of it. And I understand that. If I was raised in a Calvinistic society, I, and I believe, and I was told that's what God is like, I'd say, "Well, forget Him. I want no part of it." But you have to understand that these, you know, the evil, spiritual evil, they're not just you know hanging out in you know in, in, in bars and, and, and uh, you know in the satanic occult areas. They hang out in the church. They so many denominations have been. Possessed, have, have, I want to say possessed, have been possessed by, I've said many denominations have, have had a strong influence of spiritual influence around them. And I think that the Albinism is one of those, unfortunately. I think it's, uh, if you read some books by Dr. Malachi Martin, I mean, not Dr., excuse me, Father Malachi Martin, who was a Jesuit priest who saw the corruption in the church. He wrote two books, I think, The Keys to This Blood and The Windswept House. He talks about how there are altars to Satan in certain areas in the Vatican. And he was one who would know. He had no reason to lie because saying, "Yeah, you know, he's." I, I think he was taken out, but for it. But he. The point is that the spiritual evil they infiltrated churches, and people have been hurt. People have been hurt by it. You ask what denomination I am. Uh, I am non-denominational. I don't regularly go to a church because I, I haven't found one that really helps me grow. I actually have a small group that I meet with who. Made up of other people who've been hurt by the church and who've come out of it and who have grown tremendously by getting back to the way church is supposed to be, which you read about in the book of Acts, which is just people coming together, studying the word of God, praying for each other, being there for each other, and helping each other grow. And, you know, that's what, you know, that's kind of what, what I'm all about. I love that. I think a lot of people are gravitating towards that more. And, you know, I think the church has led many people astray from the true teachings as they were meant to be and astray from the creator, which is unfortunate. You know, one of the ideas that I took umbrage with as a teen was a lot of people sort of retort this when you talk about nature or, you know, when I was a vegan, although I'm not a vegan anymore, when I was a vegan, I made the argument, you know, against eating animals and people would say, well, in the Bible, it says that, you know, man has dominion over the earth. And I've heard some interpretations, maybe from the more new age realm, and I don't know how true those interpretations are, but I've heard that the more accurate understanding of that is that man is supposed to be a sort of steward towards yes. nature and yes. the animals and, you know, help sow abundance and growth and not take and cannibalize. And that seems to be the corporate Christian motto in a lot of unfortunate ways. And maybe that's, again, the church and not Christ. But like, you know, a lot of these so-called Christian-oriented corporations, you know, they don't have much respect for the environment. And, you know, I'm not somebody who believes in this whole climate change garbage. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation entirely. But there are many, you know, cases where, you know, pollution and other things could be mitigated if we didn't have this sort of 
really erroneous way of looking at our role, our relationship with the earth. What, yeah, I think you agree with me, right? Yeah, totally. We are. We were intended to be the stewards of the earth. We weren't considered. It doesn't mean you're going to wreck it. I mean, if you have a house, you know, I have, I own a home here. I'm going to take care of my house. I'm not going to, I own this property. You know, it's mine. So I could take a sledgehammer and just start beating, not putting holes in my walls. But why would I do that? It doesn't, that doesn't, that's not productive. That's not what home ownership is all about. It's about building your home up and making and nurturing your home. And if the earth is our home, that's what we're supposed to do. So yeah, I'm not a vegan either. I'm actually, I'm more of a carnivore, honestly. And so, and I believe that, you know, animals are, you know, are, we, I think it's okay to eat animals, but I also have a dog who I love dearly. And, you know, I've had pets my whole life and, but I take care of those of, of my pets. And I, I don't want to pollute. I don't want to make the earth a inhospitable place. And you can use, you can erroneously use the Bible or, or any philosophy to perpetrate your personal beliefs, but that doesn't mean that's not the Bible's fault. I mean, people try to use the Bible to justify slavery. You, you can't. The Bible doesn't authorize chattel slavery. You know, it's like, you know, you can, just because you say you're doing something in the name of Jesus doesn't mean you're doing it in his name. If you, if I say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go out and be an, an, a, a, a hardcore climate change environmentalist in the name of Mark. Well, just because I say that doesn't mean it's true. It's actually the opposite because you just said that's not who you are. So you have to look at are they what is what they're doing actually in line with the philosophy they're claiming. Right. And if you destroy the earth in the name of the dominion that God gave you, well, then you're just showing that you don't understand it or you're just using it as an excuse to, to just do what you want to do. Yeah, I love that point, and I'm glad we spent a moment to focus on it because I think that's one of the main, you know, I guess from that childish point of view that I had, that was one of my main issues with what I perceived as, you know, Christianity back then. And, yeah, I'm glad to sort of shed that false thought and realize, yeah, what's actually being said there. And there are so many cases of that in the Bible, I mean— so many people use phrases from the Bible for their own political means. It kind of, you know, I guess it, it should shine badly on them in the end, right? So, but yeah, it's yeah. up to us to understand it and not take it from the person and, you know, do our own research. I think that's really what I get from your story is that you eventually reach the point where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to take my rational mind and what I know and look at this Bible from an objective point of view. And when you do that, you know, I honestly, I'm swayed and I know people listening, they may be like, well, what is this a Christian podcast now? And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, we need to be open-minded to all perspectives. And especially when it comes to, combating this scientific materialism which as yeah. you pointed out it's it requires more stupendous belief than what's set forth in the bible really i mean it as you've laid it out it's far more rational and i do want to get into things like evolution and all that and maybe i should take some time and you know per peruse your channel and and get more acquainted with the material and have you back on for another conversation about that more in depth but when it comes to ideas like karma 
reincarnation, even ancient civilizations like Atlantis. They're all kind of mixed together in this soup of new age sort of Christianity. Sometimes they can fall under that umbrella. And I wonder what you think of all that, like when particularly maybe Atlantis and Lemuria, we can save for another day. But when it comes to ideas like karma and reincarnation, because I I do personally, I, I think there are Uh, parallels to those ideas in the Bible. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, well, karma is basically, it's justice. And I believe in justice because God is is always a completely right and just. Karma and justice both say the same thing, that things equal out. That if you take a value, it has to be given back. And so if if you give, value comes back to you. If you take value, it has to be taken from you. That's what justice is. That's what karma is. Things have to balance out. And that's what the, when we talk about final judgment, there's only going to, you know, there's going to be the one in the book of Revelation in the in chapter 21, you have what's called the great white throne judgment. That's when you know, everything's over at this point. You know, the earth is about to judge the earth and everyone who's, who has been, who's lived and they come back and what's called the, the final resurrection. So everyone who's lived from and done evil from the time from Cain who killed Abel all the way up to whoever did something, you know, last week, they will be held accountable if they, if they weren't forgiven by the, you know, by, by the sacrifice of Christ. And you want to live on your own and say, you know, I'll just, I'll be good on my own. Well, you, you can't be because you're never going to be perfect. All of you will see about basically a playback of your life and you have, you go through the final judgment and you're, you know, and you're, you're living separation from God again, if you haven't been, if you have not uh, you know, been a part of the Christian philosophy, if you haven't accepted Jesus. So that's final judgment. Everything balances out. Everyone has to pay for it. So even people today who, you know, they do horrible things like, you know, human trafficking and, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies poisoning us and poisoning the land and the air and people who are, you know, all the horrible things you can imagine, rapists, genocidal folks who seem like they're getting away with it. You know, they live fabulously wealthy lives. They have, you know, jets and yachts and all this kind of stuff. And you think, why aren't they getting judged? They will be. God is a God of justice, but he gives you your entire life to make up for it. You have a chance. Anyone can turn. I mean, the worst person in the world could make a change of heart right now and say, you know what? I've been horrible. I'm going to spend the rest of my life making amends for what I did before what I've done. Well, that's what this life is about. But once this life is over, you've made your decisions and then you're judged for it. So, Karma, yes, absolutely. Reincarnation, that I, I I don't believe in that because I believe that you know you are given one life to live, and you know it's, it's, it says in the Bible it's, it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. So I so I from a philosophical point of view, I'm not into karma. I'm sorry, I'm not into reincarnation because I also think that technically wouldn't I, I would think that karma would. I think it's actually technically unjust if you keep coming back over and over again because you're. I mean, if you come, if you're, uh, I guess, if I understand it correctly, reincarnation. If you're a good person, you come back as at a higher level in a better station in life. If you're a, a bad person, you come back at a lower level or lower station in life. So you keep having all these chances over and over again. That that doesn't sit well with me. But again, I if you want to, if someone believes that, I'm not going to. I'm not here to tell people what to believe. I'm only here to tell you what I believe and why I believe it. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think you're entitled to that. And that's exactly why I want to have you on the show. Because as I said in the beginning, you know, everybody has their own 
unique perspective. And I think that's where we learn the most when we can just let someone like yourself share. And, you know, I try to ask the right questions. I do my best, Mm -hmm. but you know, sometimes I miss the mark and the people in the comments tell me where I miss my mark. So nobody's perfect. We're all (laughs) 10 years ago. I didn't know what I know now. And 10 years from now, if I'm still around, I'll know more than I know now. So I'm never going to be dogmatic and say that I know everything. Right. Because maybe there's something about reincarnation I just don't understand right now. Oh, absolutely. And I'm with you on that point, you know, 10 years from now and 10 years ago. And yeah, I think, you know, my main reason for asking that is I wonder if there was a parallel to that or maybe just a broader understanding of that. And I think you did kind of touch on that. I mean, heaven could be interpreted in some ways as another life. And yeah, I oh, mean, definitely. Yeah. You know, and, and then maybe even like, you know, our soul really is, is not who we are here incarnated. So like to reincarnate might even be just a misunderstanding of like, the fact that, you know, I, Mark, will never exist after my physical body dies, right? And maybe that was the more important point that they were right. trying to get to with Christ- with the, the Christian thought is not like, oh, well, you know, hey, buck up, buddy. You'll get another chance if you're a sinner in this life. They're like, no, no correct what's wrong with you now or mm-hmm. now because it's important. You know, don't right. just push it off to the next life. Yeah, we'll be considered the next life heaven, or actually, I mean, technically, it's this the new Jerusalem. We're not going to spend eternity in heaven. That's more of a that's more mythology. We're going to there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be here. But what we will be in heaven is you will be your authentic, unique self, and you will be able to express your uniqueness for eternity and interact with other people. We talked about this at the beginning of this show. We'll be able to interact with other people and their uniqueness, and and be constantly getting value from each other and constantly growing. Right. Heaven is not a heaven or there or afterlife is not an end E and D state. It's a state where we will be constantly growing and becoming better and getting closer and closer to God and Jehovah. But we'll be doing it in a state where we're infallible and we're not selfish and we're not self-centered, where we're freely giving our value to others and freely receiving value from others and freely growing. And that sounds pretty exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It does. I agree. And I love this conversation. I really think it was, it was, it's sort of synchronistic, you know, and that's why I made the comment earlier where people are like, what is this, a Christian podcast now? Because this is coming on the heels of a couple conversations that I've had with people who identify as Christians. And it was mostly what we talked about during the conversation. So yeah, I like this development. I think it's a sign in my own life to open up the Bible and see what's waiting in there for me. And I hope maybe we can inspire others to do that, even if they find themselves on a different spiritual path, you know, that's partly, you know, what we did here in this podcast and maybe. Yeah. So, so I'll end it with this because I know after one, I'm sure you probably do too. If you want to take that journey, that's why faithbyreason.net is there there's a, a place at the very top that says start here and it goes on a journey. It just, it takes you on a journey through Christian philosophy from, you know, from just the existence of God. It, actually the first part of faith by reason, when you go to start here, it doesn't even start with God. It starts with like the basic question that we all have, which is why are we here? Right. What's the point of existence? What's the meaning of life? And it goes forward to there from there to what God is, 
what the it then goes through the entire Christian history. So it's not you're not reading the Bible, but you're going through all the stories of the Bible, and again you get to the end to to Revelation, which is where I am now. And it's, it might be if you want to, you know, feel free to go to to the site and just take that journey. Wonderful. Well, that was going to be my last question is where can folks follow up with you? You answered that faithbyreason.net and you also have a YouTube channel, which I'm sure folks can connect with once they go to faithbyreason.net. And you also have a rumble channel for those who want to see the content that won't get censored. If you do, I got a couple couple strikes against me on YouTube, so who knows how long I'll be there. Right. So yeah, so I got rumble going. Well, that'll be linked in the description and Ed, I look forward to having you back on the podcast and until next time, folks immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And I don't want to make (laughs) too many disclaimers about this, but I do feel like Christianity has accidentally become a theme in the past few episodes. And if that's not your thing, well, I hope you stuck around and listened anyways. And if that is your thing, well, be prepared to hear some ideas that might challenge those ideas in the future, because I like to stay as open-minded as possible. I like to hear everyone out without judgment. So if uh, if these topics aren't your thing, don't be dismayed. If they are your thing, well, uh, soak it in, because I loved it. I thought it was very fascinating, and uh, yeah, I'm going to try to keep it... Uh, a variety show you know i don't i don't like to get too narrow viewed and it definitely feels synchronistic that multiple guests have sort of come up that have brought up some mystical and fascinating aspects of the bible and i do have a sort of christian centric perspective just because of how i was raised so yeah it all kind of clicks with me and You know, I'm guessing most people in America can relate to that Christian-centric worldview, so maybe it's interesting. Maybe these are new ideas for you. Maybe you're like me and you kind of gravitated away from religion uh, and then now are gravitating back towards it. I think that's something that a lot of people are experiencing. Sam Tripoli can't shut up about it, (laughs) respectfully so, but hey, that's him. I love it. And yeah, definitely not a theme um, that I intended on, but I definitely appreciate it. So yeah, don't want to offend either side. I just want everyone to stay open-minded and come to the come to the campfire with open ears, you know. So, anyways, if you've heard me uh, breathing weird, that's because this basement that I'm recording in is pretty damn damp. And we're replacing the uh, whatever it's called to get the humidity and the dampness out of here soon. So hopefully then I'll have some more fresh air down here and I won't sound like I've smoked 30 packs of 
uh, cigarettes a day for the past 10 years because it definitely is a little taxing on my lungs and the way I speak. I have to like take frequent pauses to, to take a breath and I notice that that doesn't happen when I'm not in this basement. So it's kind of weird. Hopefully we'll be able to fix that issue soon enough. We've got some really, really awesome interviews on the way. I'm going to have Paul Stobbs back on the show. So if you want to ask any questions, uh, be sure to sign up on the Patreon or the Substack. I'm going to start putting like a post up a few days before I interview a guest. That way people can submit questions to that guest and it probably will work best for people who are returning guests. Um, but I'll also try to put as much information there about the guest and even link to other interviews or places where you can find that particular person's information. So, for example, with Paul Stobbs, he's been on the show before, so we can... Uh, we can just rest assured that most of you are already familiar with him and may have some questions that you'd want to ask him. Uh, hopefully you've checked out his YouTube channel. So yeah, if you have any questions for Paul that you'd like me to ask, and I will give you credit if you sign up on the Patreon, uh, if you sign up on the Substack. If you just want to ask a question and you don't care about credit, uh, you could send me a message on Instagram, but priority goes to the people who support the show so get off your lazy ass support the show uh, it's the least you could do for less than a cup of coffee a month you can support this show and keep us in business so we can continue to put out excellent episodes for free and it's really you know it's only like two percent of the audience that supports so i want to get that up to like 10 or 20 percent if we can and that'll change, uh, that'll change the game entirely for me. Like I said in the past few episode outros, we're trying to reach a goal towards 250 supporters on Patreon and Substack. And once I have 250 paid supporters, I will be able to afford to do more things like spend more time recording episodes, spend more time researching, and also... I will commit to doing one in-person interview a month. I'm going to go out of my way to find interesting people who might not be able to sit down at a computer for two hours and have a conversation with me, but they would if I showed up with the microphone and the camera. Of course, I don't have a camera yet, so I got to pay for that. So anyways, long story short, if you like this show, if you like my style of interview and you want to see me continue to do stuff and innovate and change the game and do interesting things with this platform, you got to support the show. It's the best way to make the most of uh, the value here on the show. I mean, because it's sort of like a karmic relationship where you give and I give back, you know? All the bonus content on the Patreon and the Substack you'll immediately have access to, to, as well as our community on Telegram. So, join there, and yeah. I just want to give a shout out to our new supporters, people who just signed up this week for the Patreon. And we did get a couple of one-time donations since the last episode, so I want to give those folks a shout out as well. 
Very awesome stuff. Okay, so recently signing up, we have, um, well, I already mentioned Matt last week. Uh, Ian, shout out to you. Uh, shout out to Isaac, who was a guest on a recent bonus episode for Patreon, Patreon people only. He's the gentleman I mentioned who makes Organite devices. And uh, yeah, shout out to Isaac. Thanks for joining us on the Patreon. Uh, next up, we got James. Shout out to you. Permacris. That's a cool name. Maybe he's into permaculture. What's up, Permacris? Um, shout out to you J.H. Shout out to you Thank you for signing up And Kristen B. All of you rule I really appreciate it And yeah, that's what we got for Patreon signups I think there was one or two people that signed up On Substack, paid uh, Brian, shout out to you I think I gave you a shout out last episode And then we have some people that sent us a donation one person all the way from the czech republic which was amazing i'm gonna give them a shout out i just want to make i make sure i get their name correct but first we got david who's donated before he's a real g very kind soul uh sent us a nine dollar and eleven cent donation uh not on 9-11 but the, then he sent a white rabbit emoji with that. So maybe there's some kind of hidden code. Some kind of hidden code going on there. Who knows? Next up, let's see. Where is he? Our friend in the Czech Republic. Oh, and I want to give a shout out to Amish Phil. Everybody in Alt Media United deserves a shout out because they all helped me uh, pay for the website hosting this past go around. So shout out to them. For doing that, Amishville's just the most recent one to do so, but everybody who's in the Alt Media United, for the most part, has sent me some money to help me cover the hosting fee, because that's what we do. We're a cooperative. Uh, but anyways, uh, shout out to Branamir in the Czech Republic. Branamir says, um, one of the best podcasts. Wow. I appreciate that. Bronomir D. I like that. We have people all over the world who are not afraid to support the podcast. I think that might be the first uh, donation I've received from the Czech Republic. So shout out to you. Uh, I wonder how much $12 in USD converts to whatever money they use in the Czech Republic. I wonder. But hey, if I ever come out to the Czech Republic, Branimir, you gave me your address on uh, PayPal, so <laughs> I'll come in knocking. Anyways, uh, shout out to Branimir and everyone else who was kind enough to support the show. We even had somebody buy a coffee on Buy Me a Coffee, so I got to go and find, find them real quick because I don't want to leave them out. Yep, Al. Al bought us a coffee and he said, check out Thinker Thunker's analysis of the gunfire at Dealey Plaza. Cheers. So this was definitely in response to our last episode. Thank you, Al. I did watch that. I was fascinated by that. And uh, it did seem like the audio came from somebody's walkie-talkie. So I don't know where that person was standing. 
I don't remember what the video said, but uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Who knows? Maybe they had like a, uh, a gun on the scene that they fired into the air. Maybe there really was a gunman. Who knows? Uh, I'm not going to spoil the movie yet, but people who are supporting the show heard me talk about it. And I'll say that I got into it on a supporters only show that Juan and I did just this past monday so uh sign up for the show if you want or for the supporters only side of the show patreon or substack i'm going to be uploading that episode to substack tomorrow but me and juan are doing a brand new podcast where him and i uh it's essentially like illuminati confirmed without the guests we're just gonna bullshit and talk and have fun and we're gonna dive into different mysteries the first episodes will be all about the Falconelli mystery, and who knows, maybe we'll never get to the bottom of it, and we'll just talk about Falconelli. So go and check that out. If you don't know who Falconelli is, sign up and learn about him. We're going to try to figure out who Falconelli is together. The first episode features Chris, our friend who did Illuminati Confirmed with us, uh, although we are not, we're not calling that show that, so don't. Don't expect to hear that. It's totally different. <laughs> okay? Okay. All right. I've babbled on long enough here in this outro. And, yeah, got to go. Love you all. Please do send in more one-time donations. Sign up on the Patreon and the Substack. And uh, love to the hit kit. Although, right now, um, we are still sponsored by the hit kit. The hit kit Unfortunately, due to a um, operator or a machine error, we gotta get a, he's got to get a new part. Garrett's got to get a new part for his machine. So the hit kit is uh, out of business temporarily, but they will be back in business soon. So send some love to Garrett uh, at the hit kit. If you've bought a hit kit before, go and send him some love. Uh, the hit kit on instagram or hitkit.us and shout out to gulag america i think i'm gonna put another gulag america ad in and that'll be four gulag america ads and we'll see maybe based on how good the the ads worked out maybe gulag america will be a regular value for value sponsor uh, but we will never have dynamic ads. We're never going to do McDonald's or Ford or whatever. I'm going to try to stay as close to the value for value model as I can. And I hope you guys respect that and enjoy and appreciate this free show that I deliver to you at least once a week. But most of the time, twice a week and sometimes more. So, yeah. Anyways, enjoy it wherever you are in the now. Peace. MFTIC. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused, like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. My family thinks I'm crazy. I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal, the universe within me. Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Pop
puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya. Subliminal messages hijack your perception, tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls they highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35 Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.